You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, I'm Steve Greenberg, and we've reached the final episode of our first season of Speed of Sound. So before we get to the concluding portion of our deep dive into the 90s teen pop explosion, I'd like to invite you to suggest topics for our next season. You can send your suggestions to me via Twitter at Stevie G Pro. And if you've enjoyed our first season, please do leave a rating or better yet, a comment on our page wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get on with our story. In the early 1980s, Johnny Wright was a DJ at a small radio station, WCOD, in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Cape Cod, the way it should be, WCOD. One of his regular listeners was a recording artist named Maurice Starr, who was starting to have some national success along with his brothers as part of the electro-funk group, The Johnson Crew. One day in 1982, Maurice Starr called Johnny Wright at the radio station and asked if he'd like to invest $1,500, along with a few other backers, to record a single with the winners of a talent show that Starr was holding in Boston. Well, Johnny Wright didn't have $1,500 to spare, so he had to take a pass, and it turned out to be a pretty big missed opportunity because the group that won the talent contest ended up becoming a very successful pop and R&B act called New Edition, who burst onto the scene in 1983 with the hit Candy Girl. New Edition left Maurice Starr a year after that breakout hit in a dispute over money, And to get revenge, Maurice Starr returned to Boston to form a new boy band, which he christened the New Kids on the Block. 
Now, Johnny Wright was a smart guy, and there was no way he was going to miss out a second time, so he went to work for Maurice Starr as part of that group's management team. And this proved to be a very smart move because New Kids on the Block emerged as superstars in the late 80s. More importantly for our purposes, New Kids on the Block proved to be the prototype for the modern boy band. Five teenage boys who sang and danced to R&B-influenced pop tunes. And in an America which was still segregated in important ways, it was not incidental that, unlike New Edition, the boys in New Kids on the Block were white, which made it more comfortable for teen magazines like Tiger Beat to market the group to their white, preteen female audience. Anyway, after four years of nonstop touring and promotion, New Kids on the Block decided to take a break in 1990. This left Johnny Wright without a gig, and so he signed up as the tour manager for a German dance music group called Snap. Touring across the world with Snap provided Johnny Wright with an up-close education in the international music market, which would come very much in handy a few years down the line, as we'll see. Now, in 1993, while he was out touring with Snap, opportunity once again knocked on Johnny Wright's door. I kept hearing people from, that I knew from Orlando saying, hey, this rich guy who owns these blimps, he has a boy band. He wants you to come check him out. And I was like, eh, I don't know. I've been there, done that. He says, yeah, well, you know, again, he's trying to get to you. So about six people had come to me and, and had given me the same story. So finally, I decided to take a meeting with him. So we went to an Italian restaurant in Orlando. I show up and he was sitting at a table that was set up for 14 people. And it was like, he was sitting there like the godfather. And I'm like, like what's going on here? And there was nobody else in the room. So he, he said, sit down, sat down, had a little chit chat. And then all of a sudden, five guys start walking in from the kitchen, singing an acapella version of Shy, If I Would Have Fall. And uh, that was a backstreet voice. The rich guy who owned Blimps and who put together the Backstreet Boys was a man named Lou Perlman. He was from Flushing, New York, and he grew up across from Flushing Airport, where the Goodyear Blimp used to park during the summer. Young Lou Perlman became fascinated by Blimps, and eventually he started his own Blimp company, where he leased his Blimps to advertisers. Now, Lou Perlman was also a first cousin to the singer Art Garfunkel of Simon and Garfunkel fame, and he was very intrigued by, plus a little bit jealous of, the fame and fortune that people in the music business seemed to earn. When he was invited to a New Kids on the Block show in Orlando, he was blown away by the money he assumed they were making on ticket sales and t-shirts. So, Lou Perlman took some of the considerable wealth he'd acquired through extremely dodgy stock trades in his blimp company and invested it in a huge talent search with the goal of creating a new boy band. Perlman took out an ad in the Orlando Sentinel newspaper that read, Producer seeks male teen singers that move well between 16 and 19 years of age, wanted for a new kids type singing dance group. Perlman chose Orlando on the theory that the city was a magnet for young talent trying to gain employment in the local theme parks. Hundreds of boys showed up to audition in Lou Perlman's blimp hangar in Kissimmee, Florida, and in the end, Perlman settled on 
Brian Luttrell. Yo, what up? This is the B-Rockster, Brian. Howie Duro. Como estas? This is Howie D. Nick Carter. Hi, this is Nick. AJ McLean. What up, yo? This is AJ. And Kevin Richardson. What's up? What's up? This is Kev. Lou Pearlman named the group the Backstreet Boys after the Backstreet Market, a flea market that was a popular hangout for Orlando teenagers. Pearlman's vision was to mold the Backstreet Boys into something pretty much like the new kids on the block. So it was only logical that he'd seek out Johnny Wright. So he ended up, you know, going back to his house. And he, he, I also, for new kids on the block, I used to be the MC. So I would come out and open the show and announce them and all the other things that were going on for the show. So while I'm sitting in Lou's living room, he says, I want to play something for you. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, he's going to play me a song or something. He actually plays a tape of me introducing the guys at Nassau Coliseum. And I'm like, wow, how did you get that? And he goes, you know, I've got a lot of tricks up my sleeve. He goes, this is why, you know, I'm going to be super successful in the music business and I need your help. So we had a conversation, you know, back in the day with new kids, I was just an employee. And I said to him, look, if I'm going to do this again, you know, I need to have a bigger stake in the act. And we formed this relationship and thus became the Backstreet Boys. Lou Pearlman started his own record label, Transcontinental Records, and Johnny Wright handled the management duties. After months in a rehearsal boot camp at the Blimp Hangar, they went looking for a record deal. They almost got a deal with Mercury Records, but that deal got nixed when John Mellencamp, who was one of the biggest artists on the label, got wind of it and threatened to walk if Mercury dared to stoop so low as to sign a boy band. By the way, a couple of years later, John Mellencamp didn't utter a peep when Mercury Records signed Hanson. Eventually, the Backstreet Boys were signed to Jive Records, who at the end of 1994 sent the group to Sweden to work with Dennis Pop and Max Martin, two songwriters who were signed to Jive's sister publishing company, Zamba Music. Now, in 1994, Max Martin was a young songwriter just beginning to have some success, but Dennis Pop, he was already a major hitmaker. In fact, he produced the number one song of 1994, The Sign by Ace of Bass. The first song Dennis Pop and Max Martin recorded with the Backstreet Boys was called We Got It Going On. Now, on our previous episode of Speed of Sound, we discussed how, despite Jive Records' best efforts and the band's relentless promotion, the song flopped when it was released in America in 1995. This was at the height of the period when alternative music stood at the center of the pop universe, and there was no appetite in the U.S. market for a boy band. Worried the band would be dropped by their label, Johnny Wright convinced Jive Records to give up on America, for now, and try to market the Backstreet Boys in Germany. Remember, through his success with Snap, Johnny Wright really understood the European market, as he recalls. Now, in Germany, boy bands were really hot, and one of their biggest bands was a group called Cottony Act. And so when the promoter went to the manager... He felt in such a way as like, yes, bring those American boys over. My guys are the biggest thing in the land and we're going to show German supremacy and we're going to wipe these guys up. So the one thing he didn't realize is, is that all the boy bands in Germany lip sync. 
and the Backstreet Boys actually sang live. So on our first show that we were open up for him, you know, it was in Frankfurt, 16,000 people. And the guy's original opening was for them to run out and start doing this big dance number. And I pulled him back and I said, no, no, no. We're going to go out and we're going to sing that a cappella version that you first introduced to me with. And they were like, no, the audience is not going to like that. They're not going to, it's not hype. And I'm like, just trust me, go and do it. And so when they were first introduced, they got booed. But they still walked out on the stage, they grabbed their five mics, and they started going into the acapella. And all of a sudden, the booze started to subside. And all of a sudden, people started paying attention. And then by the time they got finished with the song, they got a round of applause. And then obviously, the second song went into an up-tempo, and they started dancing their asses off. After two weeks of opening for Caught in the Act, the Backstreet Boys had stolen that group's audience right out from under them. And their single appeared at number eight on the German charts within the first three days of its release. And that became the start of Backstreet Boys mania in Europe. In the height of the Backstreet Boys in Germany and the UK, we used to play 30,000 seats. We used to play festivals and whole nine yards. Then we'd get on a plane and come back to the United States and we'd hear crickets. But while the Backstreet Boys were paying their dues in Europe, the U.S. music market was beginning to change. As we discussed last time, in 1997, first the Spice Girls, and then Hanson, rocketed to the top of the U.S. charts, reintroducing America to unadulterated pop music. For the Backstreet Boys, it was time to come back to America. And so we ended up having a conversation with Jive, and they put another record out called Quit Playing Games With My Heart. And that record actually exploded in what set up, you know, the Backstreet Boys' success in the United States. Quit Playing Games With My Heart entered the U.S. Top 10 in July of 1997. Now, by this point, not only were Hanson and the Spice Girls right alongside it in the top 10, but so was another Dennis Pop and Max Martin song, Do You Know What It Takes, performed by an 18-year-old Swedish singer named Robin. That summer, it became clear that pure pop was back in a big way. And I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention one more pop smash that you could hear everywhere you went that spring and summer. I Want You by the Australian duo Savage Garden. Like the UK's Spice Girl, Savage Garden came from a country where pure pop had never really gone away. Lee Leipsner, who was a promotion man for Columbia Records in those days, remembers how he felt the first time he heard that record. It was fresh, smart, memorable, innovative, and so hooky, and made you feel good, like a great pop record should. Anytime I need to see a piece of this, close my eyes, and I am taking to a piece of crystal mind, and a gentle feeling, take a chapter in the face of my spine, straight like a chicken cherry cola. So, teen pop was red hot in 1997. In fact, the only thing rivaling it for dominance on the charts was the incredible string of number one hits on Puff Daddy's Bad Boy label, which represented what was probably the poppiest rap ever got while still remaining credible. Now, 
Meanwhile, the Spice Girls continued to rule the roost, becoming the biggest pop group in the world by the second half of 1997. That fall, they were the talk of the MTV Awards, with host Chris Rock pointing out what a widespread guilty pleasure they'd become. The Spice Girl's a big thing, Spice Girl. Like 10 million records sold, I can't find one person that'll admit to buying one. <laughs> Nobody admits to buying a Spice Girl's record. They cool at all. But, you know, Spice Girls are kind of like heroin. You know somebody's doing it, but nobody admits it. <laughs> when the Spice Girls got up to accept an award that night, Mel B, a.k.a. Scary Spice, commented on how the ground in the music world had really shifted. Um, all I can say is good to finally be, you know, getting this award for pop music. I can say it. Pop music. There you go. <laughs> At that point, the Spice Girls marketing machine was really running in overdrive. There were brand tie-ins with Pepsi, Sony PlayStation, Polaroid, British Telecom, as well as various candy and potato chip brands. And then, to put a big exclamation point on their success, the Spice Girls released a feature-length film, just in time for Christmas in the UK and just after New Year's 1998 in the US. It was called Spice World, and it borrowed its aesthetics from the Beatles film A Hard Day's Night. As in the case of A Hard Day's Night, filmgoers were given a peek at what it might have felt like to be in the white-hot center of a pop phenomenon. Spice up your life with the Spice Girls. Spice World. Yeah, but can they act? Um, blah, blah, blah. Um, girl power. Feminism. Do you know what I mean? In a 2007 BBC documentary, Victoria Beckham, a.k.a. Posh Spice, remembered what it was like making Spice World. You know, we weren't expecting Oscars out of it. It was what it was. It was great fun. People loved it. The music in it was great. That was all the songs from the second album. Spice World got mixed reviews from critics, but it was a commercial hit, as was the accompanying soundtrack album. Meanwhile, in the real world, things were starting to get a little rocky for the Spice Girls. In November 1997, the girls decided they'd be better off managing themselves, and they fired their manager, Simon Fuller. The manufactured group had turned on their Svengali. The girls were exhausted from their very punishing promotion and performance schedule and decided Fuller was pushing them too hard. During this period, at least two of the Spice Girls, Ginger and Sporty, developed bulimia. And so, managing themselves and amidst everything else that was going on, the Spice Girls got ready for a world tour. During this period, Jerry Halliwell, a.k.a. Ginger Spice, began to take on more of a leadership role in the group, which just added to the tension. Here she is discussing that time in the BBC's Spice Girls Giving You Everything documentary. It's a really fine line of trying to manage people personally and then equally manage them professionally. So on one hand, he's saying, yeah, I want to make lots of money for these girls, da, 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 go for it, because that makes us happy, but equally not to the detriment of their health. And then we had to start employing people and finding people, and so it's us lot running the show, and it's like six-year-olds driving a lorry. Melanie C., a.k.a. Sporty Spice, recalls that the timing of the firing was particularly tricky. Oh, what a crazy, crazy time. You know, we're on top of the world, you know, biggest bands in the world, got everything going for us. We've got a tour planned, a world tour, and we decide to leave our manager, as you do. <laughs> and so, managing themselves, and amidst everything else that was going on, the Spice Girls got ready for a world tour. During this period, Ginger Spice began to take on more of a leadership role in the group, which just added to the tension. I know I probably upset them at times, and 
And it, it's horrible thinking that, you know, that if I made them cry or anything like that. But sometimes I think it's because I was the eldest one. I automatically thought I knew what the right thing was, a decision or something. And so I thought, you know, it was for the, the, the greater good if we'd do something. Sometimes I'd maybe boss, be too bossy and say, come on, we've got to do it like this. But thinking actually they're going to feel better in the long run. Ginger was by far the most flamboyant of the Spice Girls, and she made up for her relative lack of singing and dancing talent with a flair for the dramatic, at one point wearing a Union Jack dress made from a towel. As the one who stood out, she was also becoming a lightning rod for criticism of the group on the part of the notoriously fickle British press. And on top of everything else, she had to deal with the emergence of nude photos taken when she was a model years before she joined the Spice Girls. So when the Spice Girls Girl Power World Tour began in February 1998, Ginger was feeling particularly frazzled and there was tension building within the group who were trying to figure out how to make joint decisions without a manager to referee their differences. Finally, in May, Jerry Halliwell decided she'd had enough and abruptly quit the Spice Girls right on the eve of their first U.S. concert dates. And I I say it was, you know, they, they said that they didn't want me to do this breast cancer uh, interview alone and, I, and that kind of did it for me I was like I can't even do that by myself but I, you know it's it was that was kind of like the final straw but I think it was an amalgamation of like I just felt I didn't belong anymore and so the four remaining Spice Girls soldiered on without Ginger the U.S. tour was a success and after it ended the group issued a single called Goodbye kind of as a tribute to Jerry Halliwell Soon, though, the band began to fall apart. Some of it was just life taking its course. Both Posh Spice and Scary Spice discovered they were pregnant nearly simultaneously. And some of it was actually due to the absence of Simon Fuller's management and creative acumen. When the Spice Girls released their third album, Forever, in 2000, it failed to reach number one in the UK. And in the US, the album stalled at number 39. Two months later, the Spice Girls announced they were going on hiatus to pursue solo projects. The ride had lasted four years, although in the U.S. it was really only two years. When we come back, Hanson emerges the unexpected darlings of not just teenage girls, but also rock critics. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. At about the same time as the Spice Girls were making their debut on the big screen with Spice World, back in the USA, Hanson were doing the same, except on the small screen. ABC Television aired the primetime half-hour special Meet Hansen the night after Thanksgiving in 1997, and it was a wild, almost surreal TV program. Hansen's manager, Christopher Sabeck, and I got to co-produce the special with the legendary Dick Clark, and I indulged my love of pop music history by suggesting that we drop the Hansen brothers in all kinds of iconic pop music settings. Like, we did one sequence on a recreation of the set where Elvis Presley performed in the round on his 1968 comeback special. At another point, we tricked the audience into thinking they were watching an Andy Williams Christmas special from the 1970s. And best of all, we got Dick Clark to dress and do his hair like it was 1965, and he interviewed the band on the set of American Bandstand after they performed Dumbop. Mind you, this was eight years after American Bandstand went off the air, and we did that segment in black and white. Over the years on American Bandstand, we've had a lot of brother acts. We've had the Everly Brothers, the Beach Boys, the Osmond Brothers, the Jacksons. We have a brother act today. Have you heard of them? Yeah. yeah. I, I know. All right. They, too, are making their debut on American Bandstand. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Hanson. I'm not sure why the network let the whole thing happen, but I'm glad they did. It was one of the most fun times I've ever had in the music business. Anyway, the next month, Hanson were the musical guest on Saturday Night Live, and they got to be in a sketch where Helen Hunt and Will Ferrell trapped them in an elevator and made them listen to Umbop again and again and again as torture. The Hanson boys were great sports about it. Things were going so well at this point that the label agreed to spend a million dollars on the video for Hanson's third single, Weird, directed by the acclaimed independent filmmaker Gus Van Sant. That video was also pretty surreal, and I remember they'd built a human-sized hamster wheel at the cost of $100,000, but production was running behind, so we never even got to use it. Having Gus Van Sant on board was another one of those signifiers to let people know it was okay to like Hanson, even if you weren't a teenage girl. 
And I guess our quest for credibility succeeded because Hanson were nominated for three Grammy Awards that year, including Record of the Year and Best New Artist. And on top of that, Umbop finished in first place in the ultra-snobby Village Voice Critics Poll as the best single of 1997. That was pretty mind-blowing, but what made it even crazier was that during that same week, Weird by Hanson was the first number one song on a new MTV show called Total Request. So we had the kids, we had the critics, we had the music industry. The world was Hanson's oyster, as Taylor Hanson recalls. I don't think I realized quite how hard it was to achieve those two things, but we were very proud that those things were both happening. And I think one of the reasons why we were especially fixated on that is that um, we really had grown up admiring artists that had had done pieces of that. So we didn't really think it was, you know, uh, overkill to want to be respected for music and also popular. And it, we, we didn't think that those were two things you were supposed to have to trade, you know, that we didn't grow up uh, with 15 years of being cool and then suddenly having a single that broke or vice versa. Of course, all that highbrow approval made the band, shall we say, unexcited about doing the conventional things a teen act typically does. For instance, Hanson were offered their own concert special on the Disney Channel, but they rejected the offer, feeling it wasn't a cool look. When we told the Disney people no to the concert special, I remember them saying, well, okay, the Backstreet Boys will be more than happy to do it. That was the first sign I got that there was competition breathing down Hanson's neck. Speaking of the Backstreet Boys, they followed up their breakthrough hit with two more big ones by the beginning of 1998, As Long As You Love Me, and another Dennis Pop Max Martin production, Everybody Backstreet's Back. Everybody, yeah, rock your body right. Backstreet's Back, all right. But by this point, there was already another group breathing down Backstreet's neck, as Johnny Wright remembers. I kept hearing rumblings back in Orlando that Lou had another band, another boy band. But when I would call him and I would say, Lou, what's the story around this new boy band? He'd say, I don't know what you're talking about. Don't know what you're talking about. Now, at that time, the Backstreet Boys records went through BMG records outside the U.S., even though they were signed to Jive Records. But Jive were about to take the band away from BMG. So Jan Boltz, who was the president of BMG Germany at that point, came to me and he said, if you have any other acts in the United States that are just as good, we'll sign them in a heartbeat. So I called Lou one night and I said, I know you say that you don't know anything about this other group. I said, but if you can find them, I think I can get them a record deal here. And so within an hour, he had me on the phone with Justin Timberlake's parents. And he's like, I found them. I found them. So we set up this audition to happen. Jan Boltz and his team were going to come from Germany to see, you know, in sync. And I had never seen them. And I flew in the night before the audition thinking like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I hope these guys are good. And I went to the rehearsal the night before and I was blown away when I walked in. And I just couldn't believe that there was another band that was that good coming out of Orlando. BMG Germany were keen to sign NSYNC, but they had some conditions. Johnny Wright remembers. They wanted two things. One, they wanted to change the name because they thought that Europeans and German people could not pronounce the word NSYNC. 
And we were like, well, but if once they get it, they'll never forget it. So we're going to keep it. And they wanted to make a member change. And we were like, no, this is the, this is the group. And you either take us all or you don't take us at all. And they did. Knowing a good thing when he had it, Johnny Wright sent NSYNC to Sweden to write with Dennis Pop and Max Martin. The first record they came up with was called I Want You Back. It was a big hit in Europe and a respectable first release for NSYNC in the U.S., reaching number 13 in March of 1998. It was also the last hit co-produced by Dennis Pop, who died of cancer in August of that year. At this point, Johnny Wright and Lou Pearlman were endeavoring to build the careers of both the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC simultaneously, which was not so simple. Here's Johnny Wright again. So what ended up happening was, as a matter of fact, you know, the Backstreet Boys album was, you know, coming up the charts. It was like in the 40s and the NSYNC album got launched and it was stuck down at 66 and it really wasn't moving and again, there was this perception that, you know, America was only ready for one boy band and that NSYNC wasn't going to really actually pick up the legs that it had in Germany. So Disney at that point in time were doing these music specials and promoting the park. Backstreet Boys was slated to do one. But there was a feeling within the Backstreet Boys that we were, you know, now an older band. Our audience was getting older. We were, you know, MTV type of band. So why are we doing TV shows now for Disney? That's just too young for us. So within 10 days of them supposed to shoot that actual special, they pulled out. Hey, wait a second. That TV special that Hanson turned down? It turns out the Backstreet Boys turned it down, too. And once they pulled out, someone from the record company went to Disney and pitched NSYNC to do the concert special. But I made a promise to the Backstreet Boys that I would never pit them against each other. So when they pulled out of the Disney special, I never called Disney and said, you know, push NSYNC. It all came from RCA, which was NSYNC's uh, label. And actually the girl that was in charge of the production that was really upset because the Backstreet Boys pulled out, she was upset at me. And she had no idea that I also represented NSYNC. So when she showed up three days before the shooting for rehearsal, she looked at me and she goes, what are you doing here? And I said, this is my band also. And she goes, if I would have known that, I would have never booked them. They better be great. And of course, they did the special. They were tremendous. And it was funny, at the end of the performance, she came into the room and she said, congratulations, now I can take your face off my dartboard. The Disney Channel concert turned out to be the event that launched NSYNC on their path to superstardom. Filled at Walt Disney World in Orlando, the TV special, besides featuring a concert, showed NSYNC enjoying the Disney Resort, participating in the Main Street Parade, and even riding a simulated roller coaster. I'm going to try to get Chris on this ride with me. I don't know. I hope he doesn't puke on me. That would be really bad. If it gets too scary for you, there's a stop button on the next side you can press. Okay? You're not pressing that button. And NSYNC's Justin Timberlake, relaxing under a tree in the Disney Animal Kingdom, explained to the TV audience how the group got together. Chris had the initial idea to put the group together, and he called me, because I'd known him from some auditions. 
And I had, uh, after I got the call from Chris, you know, I joined up with him and we called JC. And that's how we got uh, me and JC in the group. And then we saw Joey at a club. You know, he, we hit it off great and he immediately joined the group. And then we picked up Lance, who, uh, the same vocal coach as me. So, um, that's how we all, that's how we all formed the group. We put it together ourselves. And I think that's something that's paid off in, uh, in the long run because, you know, we were friends before we even got our management team and before we even signed a record deal. Johnny Wright remembers how that July 1998 special jump-started NSYNC's stalled U.S. career. NSYNC was hovering around 66 on the charts. Backstreet Boys was moving up. You know, back then, Disney played these specials like 20 times a week. So they started playing it. Fans now started to get an identity of who that band was and start picking out the characters in the band that they loved. So the album went from 66 to 44, you know, the 24. When it was at 24, the Backstreet Boys were at 16. Then it ended up hitting number 12. The Backstreet Boys moved to number four. And then NSYNC jumped over the Backstreet Boys and took the number two spot. When we come back, the teen pop scene gets its own place to hang out on TV. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
Welcome back as the ultimate battle between fans of the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC plays out. By September of 1998, both boy bands were bona fide phenomena. And MTV decided to go all in on teen pop by converting their afternoon show, Total Request, into Total Request Live, better known as TRL, broadcast every afternoon from MTV's Times Square studios. The show featured regular visits from the very biggest pop stars, which naturally created huge crowds in the streets below the studios, as Johnny Wright recalls. You know, there was no internet back then, so showing up at 3 o'clock or 3.30 on MTV in the afternoons and being able to see them and, you know, some of these fans would travel all over the country to go to Times Square and make it an event and a trip just to be downstairs when their favorite band was upstairs in, in the TRL studio. It just... It was a, it was a time. It was, it was just, it was like a movement. And it was a movement unmistakably led by the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. The two acts seesawed in and out of the number one position on TRL every single day for the first six months of the show. And they dominated the number one spot most days in 1999 as well. In fact, the moment which may just stand as the very peak of 90s teen pop craziness occurred outside the MTV building during a broadcast of TRL. It was May 18, 1999, and the Backstreet Boys appeared live on the show to promote their third album, Millennium. Johnny Wright explains the scene that ensued. So what had happened was that day we were supposed to go to radio, and then we were going to go do TRL and then do an autograph signing at the Virgin Record Store. And fans had started camping out three days before the event. So there were thousands of fans in and around the building and already in by the time the guys hit TRL. There had to be, and no lie, no, no lie, there had to be 15,000 people in that street when those guys came up and looked out the window at MTV, at TRL, which caused traffic jam, you know, the police weren't prepared for it, and it just created mayhem. Ultimately, the police had to shut down all of Times Square, and the Backstreet Boys became instant legends. And NSYNC, they were just as big. In the two years since the arrival of the Spice Girls, teen pop had run a steamroller over the music business. Justin Timberlake remembers the genesis of that movement this way. I, I, I honestly think Hanson like, just did something. Hanson and the Spice Girls just did something and went to that edge with the pop market. But by this point, NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys had far surpassed both Hanson and the Spice Girls. And so now, Lou Pearlman and Johnny Wright had two massive acts. But success does not come without complications, as Johnny Wright explains. And so now I had an issue because I had two boy bands from Orlando that were both successful. But the fans, for whatever reason, you know, decided that you either are a Backstreet Boys fan or you are an NSYNC fan and you couldn't be both. So a rivalry was created without the guys creating. Like, well, there's no trash talking from one side to the other. It was just created by the fans. The rivalry between fans of the two groups became so heated that at one point, TRL staged a trivia battle between fans of the two groups. When an NSYNC fan won the trivia battle, the losing Backstreet Boys fan accused TRL's host Carson Daly of favoritism and live on the air threatened to kill both Carson Daly and her competitor. And when that happened, that's when, you know, things got dicey for Lou and myself because now we had an angry Backstreet Boys who felt like, you know, we, we've now caused this problem by 
creating and bringing another band as competition against them. To make matters worse, the Backstreet Boys were suing Lou Pearlman's Transcontinental Records label, claiming they'd earned a grand total of $300,000 in the five years they'd been with Transcontinental, while Pearlman had earned $10 million. I mentioned earlier that Pearlman was shady in his blimp business. Well, he was even shadier when it came to dealing with his recording artists. Here's Johnny Wright again. The lawsuit started, and um, I had to end up taking a position on which band I wanted to stay with. Um, kind of forced, because uh, I felt I could still manage and, and move both of them to success, which I had already done. But, you know, I got put in a position to make a choice. And so I made the choice to stay with NSYNC. While Johnny Wright cast his lot with NSYNC, and later Justin Timberlake, who he still manages today, Lou Pearlman's Transcontinental continued to sign more and more boy bands as the 90s concluded. Some were generic, like O-Town, who were comprised of contestants from the MTV reality competition Making the Band. But at least one transcontinental group was truly inspired. Like New Edition and New Kids on the Block years earlier, LFO came from New England. And they wore that identity on their sleeves for their classic 1999 hit, Summer Girls, one of the best recordings to emerge during that whole period. New kids on the block had a bunch of hits. Chinese food makes me sick. And I think it's fly when girls stop by for the summer. For the summer. In 2008, Lou Pearlman pled guilty to conspiracy and money laundering as part of a multi-million dollar Ponzi scheme involving his transcontinental media empire. He received a 25-year sentence and died in prison in 2016. Around the time of his trial, Perman also was hit with allegations of predatory sexual behavior by members of several of the boy bands he'd worked with. And in addition to that, it turns out that the Backstreet Boys weren't the only group that Lou Perlman took advantage of financially. NSYNC made similar allegations that Perlman had stiffed them out of the millions of dollars their music had generated, and they too left his label acrimoniously. All in all, Lou Pearlman goes down as a pretty bad guy. Earlier in the 90s, and maybe for the 25 years before that, it's unlikely NSYNC could have climbed to the top of the pop world as they did in 1999. Sure, they were talented. They could sing, they could dance, and Justin Timberlake had real star quality. But the group's pedigree was all wrong. Justin Timberlake had been a failed contestant on a TV talent contest called Star Search. Worse than that, he'd been a cast member on television's new Mickey Mouse Club. So was his bandmate, J.C. Chazay. And so was another rising teen star of 1999, Britney Spears. Fans had watched these performers on the new Mickey Mouse Club just a few years earlier, but they were more than happy to embrace them as teen music stars. Clearly, the quality of the music helped make that transition possible. Like NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys before her, Britney Spears was also a product of the Max Martin hit factory.
And yet, whether or not the hits came off an assembly line didn't seem to matter one bit. Just a few short years after grunge and alternative music had captured the center of the music world, demanding authenticity as the very price of entry, in this new world of teen pop, none of that was important. Danny Goldberg, who managed Nirvana and went on to be president of Mercury Records during Hanson's hit-making period, talks about why things changed. Well, because hits are what's important. You know, cred was a means to an end. Credibility was only important because credible artists were successful. But once artists that Britney Spears, who didn't have any particular, uh, you know, intellectual cred, was hits, you know, it's a business. It's about selling records. So to those of us who care about our image at cocktail parties, being cool is important year after year. But in the music business, it's only important from time to time. You know, it was important in the late 60s, it was important in the early 90s. Other times, it doesn't matter if you're cool or not. What matters is to have hits. Cool being kind of what smart journalist types college people, you know, older people think is, is, is cool. So, you know, cool and pop only periodically uh, intersect. The decline of cred may well be interpreted as the decline of snobbery. And it's probably not coincidental that it occurred at the same time that the internet was first becoming common in American life. Surfing the World Wide Web eliminated the reliance on that layer of media gatekeepers who imposed their own sense of what was worthwhile and what was not. And as it turned out, artifice was plenty appealing, especially when intertwined with soap opera. Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears, Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey of the boy band 98 Degrees, teenage girls were fixated by the latest developments in those tales of romance and betrayal while enjoying impeccably crafted pop songs written and produced by the best in the business and sung by genuine heartthrobs. Jive Records, for better or worse, was really no different than Cameo Parkway Records in its ilk in the early 60s, with TRL taking the place of American Bandstand and Britney Spears assuming the role of 50s Mouseketeer Annette Funicello. And as long as the records were great, which many of them were, and they made people happy, which they did, why would anyone pine for some abstract notion of cred? Tom Pullman, who was program director of radio station Z100, the most listened-to music station in the country at the time, offered his thoughts on how neatly stars often fit into certain preconceived categories. Well, now, okay, we have our boy idols with Backstreet Boys. We have uh, our girl icons with Spice Girls. Now we have America's Sweetheart with Britney Spears. You know, it's like you want to fill out each category. Uh, Christina Aguilera came after Britney... By the way, in every uh, category of people that you're trying to fill, like the boy band, you know, the first in kind of takes that lead slot, but then behind Backstreet Boys comes In Sync and 98 Degrees, right? And there's room for probably about three of them. And then the women, uh, you know, you, you have Brittany and then Christina Aguilera comes behind that. Jessica Simpson probably slid in somewhere near after, and then at Jingle Ball, we had 98 Degrees and Jessica Simpson, and then Nick Lachey and Jessica. I felt for a while all of our events were like, uh, where all the, the relationships would start in the music industry too. The relationships were real, and so was the camaraderie between many of those jive artists, which conferred its own kind of cred. Johnny Wright remembers NSYNC giving Britney Spears a hand early in her career. So when Britney came out on NSYNC, she started to get booed. 
And she was like, what am I going to do? And I said, look, you have to disarm them. I said, so go out there and tell them that the five guys in the back of NSYNC are your big brothers and you're looking for five good girls to introduce them to. And do it. Pick five girls every night, disarm them, do it right at the beginning, and then take those five girls back and meet them. And so once she did that, now the relationship between her and the boys were not romantic. It was now, oh, this was our end to meet them. So now we love you, Brittany. At that point in time, the record started to heat up. And then the record became a smash and the video came out, which just took over everything. So she did the first leg of the tour with NSYNC. The record exploded. And of course, the rest is history. As Taylor Hansen recalls that period. And then you have obviously those, you know, the Backstreet Boys and, and the uh, you know, Spice Girls and others that were very much performers with a track behind them. But the thing that the common thread is it being okay to have songs that are actually about feeling good versus or, or at least celebrating some, some levity and some joy and some danceability versus uh, that earlier, you know, part of the 90s where you couldn't not be mad at your parents or, you know, talking about your drug issues or if you didn't have a flannel wrapped around your waist that hadn't been washed in three weeks, you know. Speaking of Hanson, by 1999, they became completely disillusioned with playing the role of pop idols. Night after night, Hanson looked out into the audience at their events and they saw a sea of 13-year-old girls screaming really loudly. And they wondered to themselves, where are the guys our age? 16-year-olds, let's say. Where are those guys? We want them to be our fans too. And so after that first mega success, Hanson didn't make another album for three years, which is a lifetime in teen pop. They fled the scene. They did some genuinely interesting things, like appear as themselves in Spike Jones's film, Being John Malkovich. They even performed a few songs with Bob Weir of The Grateful Dead one night in 1999 at the New York Club Wetlands. But in abandoning the teen pop scene, they eventually had their lunch eaten by the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and all those acts that came after. But clearly, they didn't want that lunch. I remember when Hanson opted out and said, oh, we just want to tour for the next couple of years and become a really tight live band, which of course precluded their going back into the studio to make a follow-up record, which would have been the buy-the-book next move for a young band with a young fan base. In the interim, the first Backstreet Boys album came out, and the second Backstreet Boys album came out. And then the first NSYNC album came out, and then the second one. And when that happened, it was clear that most of the fans weren't going to wait around for Hanson to come back. When Hanson finally did release their sophomore album in 2000, their sound was harder, more rock-influenced. And that musical direction had very much diverged from where the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, and Britney Spears had taken the teen pop scene in the intervening years, which was R&B pop. Here are Taylor Hansen's thoughts on that period in the band's career. Nobody knows the perfect steps. Uh, when we were touring the world, um, one of the things that we were really um, aware of and probably concerned with, maybe too much, uh, was having the respect as artists. And so uh, the artists we admired, many of them were not only known for their records, but they were known for being performers. So we wanted a chance to make sure that by the time we got to album number two, it it wasn't simply that 
that people saw the success of a song at radio, but that we got a chance to stand in front of audiences and put into our um, our story. Uh, look, those guys are playing. This is live music. This is a rock and roll band. Looking back, we probably could have made the dolls and seized the pop moment in a different way, but that's not really what we that's not what we got into it to do. And so we took um, we took it on the road and we made a point of playing you know these live shows and. You never are running from from hits. You're never running from great pop success. That's always something that everybody aspires to have. But um, the connection with an audience that you know has them wanting to come and see you five times in a row um, is something that uh, is a renewable energy source. You know, in high times and low. And I'm really glad that we we made that connection uh, at that time. I'm so proud and so glad that we've maintained um, a part of our story, you know, being the live performance and that, that real audience connection. So Hanson never had another big record. Or maybe, so what? Hanson never had another big record. But they've managed to carve out a long career as a really good touring band with loyal fans, and they've released a steady stream of very strong albums on their own independent label. They're that rare example of an artist quitting the race while on top. As president of Hansen's record label at the time, Danny Goldberg was understandably frustrated by Hansen's refusal to make a second album and continue on as pop idols. After all, that decision deeply affected Mercury Records' bottom line. But with two decades of hindsight, here's his perspective. I have kind of two different opinions. As a, as a, um, in terms of a, an artist having impact artistically, I think it was really only that album that really had any impact. But the reason that was is is really fascinating is because they really didn't want to play the game. I mean, they had uh, every opportunity in the world to work with any producer, any songwriter. Uh, They could have attracted 10 more hit songs and done a lot uh, and made a lot more money. And they really, um, although their image was very much pop, they had a fierce... uh, artistic notion of who they wanted to be and didn't want to deviate from it in the slightest. But they never left Tulsa. They saved their money. I think they've had a great life. They've had children. They've lived the life they wanted to have, which wasn't the life that Justin Timberlake lived. You know, I mean, Taylor Hansen could have had a Justin Timberlake type career. He had the looks, he had the talent, but he didn't have the desire to do it. And Justin Timberlake did. So I really admire them as human beings because so many people that have become very successful become bitter, self-destructive, confused, alienated. They really care more about family than anything else. They care about being good people. And uh, other artists became far, made a lot more money. But I'm not sure if any of them are any happier, you know, uh, as I think Hanson knew who they wanted to be as human beings. So I think they're an incredible example of human beings. We'd like to thank Taylor Hansen, Danny Goldberg, Johnny Wright, Tom Pullman, Phil Corderero, Karen Glauber, and Lee Leipsner for joining us on this two-part special look at 90s teen pop.
And that wraps up season one of Speed of Sound. I'm Steve Greenberg, and I'd like to thank you for listening along. As we get ready to queue up our next season, we want to hear from you. Hit me up on Twitter at Stevie G Pro to let me know which songs, genres, and artists you'd like to hear us deep dive into when we return. Until then, keep listening for music that moves you. Speed of Sound is executive produced by Lauren Bright Pacheco, Noel Brown, and me. Taylor Shacoin is our supervising producer, editor, and sound designer. Additional sound design by Tristan McNeil. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.